Welcome to the Optionality Game, a conversation with successful leaders about evaluating your options, taking the right risks, and creating your own luck. I'm your co-host, Cooper Schoenthaler. I've loved entrepreneurship since I started my first business, cleaning refrigerators, when I was eight years old. Now I'm a third-year student at Northeastern University, exploring the world of business through positions in finance and consulting. I'm your other co-host, Alison Thomas. Spending my weekends at garage sales growing up, finding items to resell on eBay, had instilled a love for business long before starting university. Now at Northeastern, I'm a fourth-year student and have worked in early-stage startups and venture capital in the past. Each of us want to build companies that positively impact the world, and so at Northeastern, we became immersed in the world of business. But along the way, we found that the path after graduation is not as straightforward as we originally thought. We see people graduate picking the riskiest options possible, like starting a business, and still end up making millions. We see others who work hard to graduate with a safe, steady, and well-paying position at the top companies, but aren't left as fulfilled as they expected. After seeing different choices result in such different outcomes, it made us wonder, should I become another 20-something just clawing their way up the corporate ladder? Do I take the path less traveled and risk my livelihood to work at a startup? Or do I throw it all away and just become a ski bum? I've honestly given equal thought to these three options as well as many others. This podcast is our much needed exploration into the options that people choose, the choices they regret, and most importantly, whether they're satisfied with how it all turned out. Lessons are best conveyed by stories, and we hope to explore the career-defining moments of business leaders and change the way you think about your decisions. So welcome to the Optionality Game. Today we're speaking to Cassie Choi, the founder and COO of Pear Team. Cassie has had a unique journey into entrepreneurship, beginning her career in a variety of nursing positions. Like many founders, after feeling frustrated with the inefficiencies of the industry, she left to join a startup. She recently took Pair Team through Y Combinator, and we're extremely excited to have her on to tell us a little more about her story. Um, and with that being said, Cassie, I'd love if you could just give us a little background on yourself and um, get us started. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, so a little bit about me. I went to Northeastern undergrad in nursing and grew up in a really small town in New Hampshire. Um, I never, ever thought about entrepreneurship at all, but I always had this um, underlying frustration about seeing the way the world was and not understanding why it wouldn't change. Um, and so after nursing school, uh, went into uh, the big city in New York City, uh, worked in critical care nursing at New York Presbyterian. And um, on, as part of the residency program, you have to develop a project to improve the hospital. And one of the things I saw when I was on the floor was how long it would take when a patient, my patient would get called into the hospital for their transplant to actually be seen by the doctors for um, their orders to get their new transplant. And these patients are so excited. They've been waiting forever with failing bodies for, their, uh, for the call for their organ transplants. And 
I would be sitting on the floor with nothing to do to help them. And so I developed an organ transplant protocol so that as soon as a patient arrives, there's predefined protocols with lab orders, EKGs, all the things that like every doctor knows they're gonna have to order for the patient as soon as they arrive, just to help get the patient like getting ready for their surgery. So that was my new grad project when I got to New York Presbyterian. But as I got, as I stayed there longer and longer, I just got so frustrated. I was only there for 13 months, but I went to Yankee Stadium and saw billboards for New York Presbyterian. They talked about it being number six hospital. But when I was working, we didn't have bed sheets for patients. I would trade my lunch uh, with people that worked in linen department for an extra bed sheet for my patient. I didn't have heparin needles to give meds to my patients. And I just thought this isn't the way that healthcare should be delivered at top hospitals. So truly uh, one night I went into work and I just quit. I didn't realize that that was gonna be the night that I quit, but I think I just had it with the city. Um, a Taurus hucked a loogie on my face one day and I was like, I had it with the city. I've had it with this hospital. And so I quit without a plan. And I came home and said, I'm gonna move to Costa Rica. Um, I'm gonna be a nurse on a beach. Um, and my fiance was like, you don't even speak Spanish. We're not moving to Costa Rica. Um, how about you try California because that's where he was from. And so I was like, okay, California's sunny. We can do that. And he brought me to San Francisco where it's foggy and cold. So I felt a little conned, but I tried nursing at other top hospitals. And instead of going and working for the hospital, I decided to use a little hack. Um, again, founders um, have this like hack mentality. I did travel nursing. So travel nursing is a way to, um, most nurses use it to travel the world and you just pick up three month stints in places. But I picked up three month stints at the top hospitals in the Bay Area. So I would pick up uh, hospital uh, contracts at Kaiser across different hospital units just to try it out. What was it like to work at Kaiser at different in different units? And I loved it. I started working with the innovations committee at Kaiser, um, trying out new products. This is Silicon Valley. So they got access to really great new innovative products, but I got to give them feedback about why it would or wouldn't work. Um, and then eventually I didn't like that they told me that you can't actually give real feedback about why things won't work because people, um, you can't document it. You can't write it down because they can get in trouble for the ways that they fall short. Um, so Kaiser crossed off my list, went somewhere else, went to UCSF, did the same thing, contracts. Um, really liked UCSF, pretty innovative, um, served the community, really liked that but then they cut community health nursing. And to me, being told every day that I had to discharge patients into the, into the community from the unit and working through my lunch break to call taxi cabs for my patients who lived two hours away and using my own money to get them home. And then being told that the one resource that would keep them at home and out of the hospital was gonna be cut because it was a red line budget item didn't make sense to me. So again, I quit, I decided not to take a full-time offer from UCSF and I didn't have a plan. I didn't know where else I was gonna go. Those were the top hospitals in the Bay Area. And luckily, this is not one of those, like I sought it out. Um, I got a, a message from LinkedIn, a LinkedIn recruiter. Um, she said, I work for a startup. I can't tell you who it is, 
but we're looking for a nurse. Um, and I'd love to tell you more about our mission. And I talked to her and loved the mission of using technology to uh, deliver better healthcare to patients who are disadvantaged. Um, it took a month and a half of interviewing with uh, founders who were uh, very inspiring. We walked all over the city. I got uh, introduced to the idea of walking meetings. Um, turns out you're not supposed to wear heels to start up interviews. Um, and I entered the startup world. I built out clinical operations. This startup ended up being forward. Um, I joined in stealth mode. Um, I built out clinical operations. I didn't just draw blood. We built out the playbooks, the product, everything from the ground up. I helped build out what the clinic would look like, what uh, clothes our patients would use, everything from the ground up. And it was such an amazing learning experience. Um, and I felt like I actually made an impact on healthcare in such a different way, but I was still able to use my nursing experience. Um, so I'll kind of pause there, um, but that's how I went from traditional, my background nursing experience to healthcare technology um, in the beginning of entrepreneurship. Wow, that's, that's quite the journey. And it seems that at every step of the way, it's just that you try to offer solutions, but oftentimes these um, organizations aren't really receptive to it. When you were first doing your graduate um, assignment of implementing this new process, um, what, what was that like with actual implementation? What was that like actually getting the doctors to, or and nurses to do the right procedures? Oh, it was terrible. There's so much bureaucracy in hospital systems. And I, they don't teach you this in nursing school. Like you learn like um, anatomy and physiology and you learn about JCO and like how they, there's like a lot of um, ways that it should be done, but you don't understand that healthcare is a business and it's run by a bunch of administrators in offices and they're very far removed from the clinical world. And the things that are right for patients aren't always the things that end up getting approved. And so I basically built out this whole protocol and then handed it off to somebody else for them to go and advocate for. So by the time I left, it hadn't even been fully implemented, but it was on the roadmap for implementation. And so my unit started using it anyway before it had been rolled out across the hospital. Um, things in hospitals just take forever. And I think that learning experience I've taken to being a founder now to understand stakeholders in hospitals um, in my industry and across other places, selling to payers now, I understand like who, who owns what metric and what, uh, what they care about and how to influence them, um, how to make sure you have the right champion behind the things that you're trying to get done. Um, back then, as like a brand new grad from college who didn't understand the dynamics of hospitals, I was just so excited to get this done. I really had this naivety that this was going to be so impactful for patients that everybody would eat it up and it would just get done. Um, it turns out that the things that are great for patients um, it, they don't always get done. Seems like you came into nursing and when you, when you came out of it and started working in the field, you realized it was a completely different beast than, than you originally expected with so many other responsibilities. 
did you always know you wanted to be a nurse? What what drew you to the practice? Oh, it's so funny. I'm half Chinese and I always joke, but like there was only like two options growing up. I was either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> and like it was either a doctor or a lawyer and I applied for one school pre-med and then I had this moment of like what if I don't get into med school? Um I will end up as like a lab rat or as like a high school biology teacher. And I don't want to be either of those. I actually want to be like doing patient care. I actually want to be like part of like helping people. And so I had this idea, like, I'll just apply as a nurse. And like, that is the most like demeaning sentence I've ever thought in my entire life is I'll just be a nurse because I think as kids, you go to your pediatrician's office and you see nurses like bring you into the room and they take your temperature and like that you think of them in such a different way. And then you go to nursing school. And I think this is one of the beautiful things about co-ops at Northeastern. You get hands-on experience very early to understand what nurses actually do. Nurses are the backbones of healthcare amongst other disciplines, but like doctors are just there to like make sure nothing's like like they make the big decisions, but nurses are the ones carrying everything through all the time. They're the ones with like the gut instincts to like understand when things are going wrong way ahead of time. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into at the time. Um, but my first co-op, I got on the floor and I was like, whoa, like I had no idea, but my co-ops were in the emergency room at Beth Israel. And I just like got in there, like one of my first days I was doing CPR on patients. And I was like, this is next level. I love the adrenaline rush. Um, but I think that's what kept drawing me in more and more was this like obligation to providing more for patients and being um, an impact, like a vehicle for change um, and for better outcomes for patients. And I felt limited by the way that the healthcare system was currently set up that nurses were typically, I mean, in the emergency room, you're caring for tons of patients, but, um, in the critical care setting, you're usually only caring for two to three patients a day. And what you're doing for them is massively impactful. But if you want to change the way that our healthcare system is currently set up, you need to go beyond that and be innovative and make creative changes and then push it back down on the system. And that's what really kept motivating me to seek alternative paths that I didn't even know existed. I never thought of entrepreneurship. Well, so I love this idea. I mean, I have to comment, of course, first of all, on the practical experience of Northeastern. Um, since everyone on the call here is from Northeastern, we can all agree that it is so great to have that initial experience and, and be able to decide what you want to do in the world. So of course, on the topic of options, it's um, definitely something that I, I appreciate. But you mentioned a few times that the best solutions for patients wouldn't necessarily be put, be put into practice at these institutions. Um, and I'm assuming that's because of just uh, systematic financial reasons. And so I'm curious how you are working around that at Pair Team and how you're able to, like you said, sort of push it back on the system. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things that I've had to reconcile with as a clinician entrepreneur is that finding a way for the thing, the product that we develop to also have a business. Like I constantly have to remind myself that there is no mission without margins. 
um, because I wish I could just like, we are a tech enabled care team that navigates patients throughout the healthcare system. We wrap, uh, you know, at risk safety net clinics with a tech enabled care team to help underserved and at risk patients navigate the healthcare system, which is great, right? Um, patients get better care, physicians improve their quality scores, which increases their revenue, right? Um, we had to work really, really hard to figure out how a care team has a business incentive in primary care. Um, primary care traditionally in fee-for-service has no incentive in navigating patients around the healthcare system. It's good for patients to get help leaving the primary care to go, say, see a cardiologist, right? But in fee-for-service, the, the primary care physician doesn't get paid when the patient shows at the cardiologist's office, the cardiologist's office does. So why would the primary care doctor pay us to help someone else get paid? That was really hard for us. So we had to do deep research and understand the healthcare system and the trends at large to understand that the fee-for-value or the value-based care, fee-for-value system would be incentivized for a primary care physician to navigate their patient to a specialist or to get imaging done, that there are certain metrics at large that incentivize this care. Um, but it took a lot of deep digging and it also requires a lot of understanding about who's, who's incentivized to pay for that because sometimes the physician doesn't care enough to pay for that and how do they get paid, right? These physicians don't have a lot of upfront revenue and so we have to go at risk with them and get paid only if we can improve their revenue by a certain uh, amount. And now we'd like to go up to the payers because if we improve the quality enough, it reduces their total cost of care. So we have to make an argument that we're decreasing their total costs of having members um, on their roster enough that they should be paying us for that benefit. So it requires deep understanding of the healthcare system in ways that I didn't know as a nurse, just taking anatomy and physiology and like clinical theory. Um, and that's, that's the deep work of aligning um, a product that I love of, you know, clinical operations with creating a, a business out of it. So it seems like at Pair Team you found the way to uh, to monetize it properly. How do you go about implementing it? You face so many of these problems going through the bureaucratic mess that hospitals can be and in primary care organizations can be. How do you ensure that um, they're they're actually using it and um, are sold? Yeah, well, that's really the uphill battle right now. I think catching us January 2021, the biggest uphill battle right now is COVID, right? These clinics that we sell to, their whole mission is to support at-risk populations. And if you take a step back, COVID is impacting those at-risk populations the most. And so these clinics have turned all of their resources, the limited ones that they do have, towards COVID testing and now this vaccine rollout. So it's really hard for us to go and make a sell to them to say, hey, you should still be paying attention to your quality program. These clinics basically only make a revenue on paying attention to their quality programs. Um, and yet they've had to put their quality programs on the back burner in replace of the only thing that they can pay attention to, which is COVID in their community, right? Um, what we're trying to say now is you can take care of your community with COVID 
and we'll take care of your quality program in the background. We'll put your quality program on autopilot while you take care of COVID um, because we're the care team that will do it in the background. We offload 10 to 15 hours of work. And while we've gotten rid of that, you now have 10 to 15 hours to do testing, to do vaccine rollout, all of these other things that are pressing for your patient population. The really big problem though, is just getting someone's attention. Typically these decision makers are not in the clinic anymore. They're trying to remove as many people from the clinic that don't need to be there as possible um, to minimize, you know, risk of infection. So a cold call is really hard to do. Um, and so what we're relying on is, you know, warm handed introductions and through, um, you know, well-known people in their community, coalitions and things like that. And we're making some headway there, um, but yeah, it's, it's tough. COVID has hit people in many different ways. And the irony is we can really make a big difference right now. It's just a matter of getting the conversation. Coming from the, the world of VC and warm intros, it definitely makes sense. You know, you gotta have that trusted person to um, introduce you. Um, and it's also interesting that it almost seems like COVID is the best place for your for your uh, business to succeed with the vaccine distribution, just everything else that comes with having everyone out of the office. And yet it also provides sort of the biggest obstacles. So it's, it's an interesting dilemma you have. Um, zooming out a little bit just for the listeners, but also for my own understanding as well. I'm curious if you could just give a little bit of background on the difference between uh, fee-for-service and pay-for-performance and sort of where they fit in the overall healthcare system. Yeah, I would guess that most of your listeners are familiar with fee-for-service. If you've gone to the doctor and you've had to pay a copay, likely it's because your, your insurance is in a fee-for-service uh, contract with your primary care doctor. It means that every time you go to the doctor, your doctor gets paid uh, a fixed amount, call it $150 for taking care of you for that 15-minute visit, right? And there are certain codes that basically tell the insurance company how much to pay, uh, to pay your doctor. Um, it's a misaligned incentive because if you went to the doctor uh, for a stubbed toe, they wouldn't be incentivized to check you for your blood pressure or to see if you have diabetes or anything else. And if you had any issues with your stubbed toe, they'd tell you to come back so they can get another $150 and they'd tell you to come back again for another $150 visit for your diabetic check. Um, this is how the traditional healthcare system has worked um, and that's how doctors make money, albeit not very much, but that's why they wanna keep their schedules filled with 40 visits a day and they only give you about seven minutes to see you and they're rushing on to the next patient. Um, they're overburdened, they're burnt out and it's a terrible system. Fee for value or value-based care um, was introduced in the Affordable Care Act, although earlier, but it's really been pushed by the Affordable Care Act. Um, and it's a really great system that aligns incentives by saying the doctor will get paid a certain amount of dollars, call it $20 per patient every single month, regardless of how many times you come to the doctor. And, but they'll get paid more money at the end of the year if they keep you healthy. So if you come in for a stubbed toe, they will also check your diabetes, check you for diabetes. They'll check your blood pressure. All of those things in that one visit because they wanna keep you healthy. And also it will cost them more money for the labor of taking care of you if you come back 
10 times that year. They'd rather only see you once. So they're gonna spend more time with you that one time to try and keep you healthy and get more money from the insurance company at the end of the year. It aligns incentives with the insurance company because they spend less money on healthy people. And so there's these huge pushes across insurance companies, the government and um, medical associations to push towards fee for value or value-based care. So I've asked you this question before, but I'm, I'm curious to sort of, you know, get it on the record a little bit, I guess. Uh, there's sort of this discussion that's been brought up about um, value-based care and the alignment of incentives, as you mentioned. So imagine that there was a doctor who sees a lump um, in someone's scan, let's say, uh, or feels something a little off, but they decide in their head, they're like, look, well, you know, our revenue is not great right now. And we um, would prefer not to have another expense of having this person come in the labor. So we'll just check it out later. Um, you know, let's just hope it's nothing, basically. Um, I'm just curious how you think about that situation and sort of what the doctor might do. Yeah. Well, in this case, if they were in a fee for value contract, they'd want to refer that person out to get it checked out because they don't want that person to accumulate costs for the insurance company um, down the line. They'd want to get it checked for breast cancer or things like that. They'd get, you know, they'd send them for a mammogram or an ultrasound um, because if they wait, not only is that more labor down the line, but that patient could could end up getting breast cancer, right? And so, this is that same notion of a sub toe and check everything out at the same time. It's highly incentivizes getting care at the point at the at the time when you're seeing a patient. It also incentivizes proactive care, which is what where pair team comes in um, of saying, hey, uh, you are a patient of my clinic. You are due for your mammogram this year. I'm going to reach out to you and tell you that I want you to get your mammogram done and not wait for you to just happenstance show up for my clinic and be like, when's the last time you got your mammogram done? Maybe we should order one. Let's make sure we're telling you that you need your mammogram done this year to look for, for risk factors and make sure that you don't have anything going on um, and make sure that we can help you get that done this year. Yeah, it's interesting to think of a, a doctor's office profiting off of having the le- the most healthy patients, the least sick patients, as opposed to right now, they would have the most money with the most sick patients, right? So um, yeah, definitely great, great explanation. Um, and just getting back a little bit more into the specifics of pair team, when did you first learn about value-based care? And how did that sort of influence your decision of starting uh, pair team? Was it an all-at-once moment? Was it a um, gradual, you sort of realized this problem needed to be solved and you thought about ways to solve it. I'm curious about sort of that initial inception of the idea. Yeah. So I've always known about value-based care. So I'll, I'll give you the, the arc to how we got here. Ironic because our actual name of the company is Arc Care. We deviate it. Pair team, it's a long story of name changes. Um, but so two years ago, actually this week, Neil and I got together to form Pair Team. And when we were thinking about what the company's like, what we would do as a company, we kept coming back to care coordination because what we had learned as uh, you know colleagues at Forward and my next startup uh, that I had worked at on the leadership team was Circle Medical. I had built out remote care teams bef- uh, twice before. I'd also built out the product that um, helped remote teams interface with onsite teams and interface with, with patients. And so we kept coming back to this notion of care coordination. 
And I just kept saying to Neil, care coordination is so hard, but we kept, we just kept coming back to like, we need to solve the hard problems for healthcare if we're going to do something and make it worth our time. Um, and so we set out to create a platform for our team to coordinate care efficiently enough to make a difference in healthcare. Um, our first market to build out an MVP, we did it in direct primary care, which is a membership-based model where patients don't use insurance. They go to a doctor. It's kind of like concierge medicine. You just pay a flat membership fee. You go to the doctor as much or as little as you want. You have access to your doctor. One of the reasons why we did that was because they were single decision makers. So our sales cycle could be really fast and we could build up our MVP quickly. Um, to prove that a remote team could be trusted by a physician and could be trusted by patients. But it also aligned incentives because the doctors were super like strapped resource-wise. They were typically solo physicians, one MA if they were lucky, but typically they were just operating by themselves. And they needed the support of a team to make them look good to these patients to keep their memberships renewing, right? Um, and it allowed us in the background to build out our platform, to build out referral networks and prove that we could do this in anywhere, any time zone, any city, any rural setting. Um, and so it was a really great testing ground for us to do it rapidly. Um, we went to 25 clinics in under a year. Um, but what we saw was high impact to outcomes that if a doctor ordered a mammogram and we provided the high touch care of offering to schedule the patient, the patient would go. And if we got the report back to the physician and scheduled a follow-up visit to review the results with the patient, the patient was more engaged in their care. And we just kept sitting back and saying, where is this more valuable? Because the direct primary care market is like supposed to be the next big thing, but it's not taking off fast enough for that to be our unicorn market. And so we couldn't wait around for that to be the only place that we existed. And so when we looked at our impact, we needed to align again, incentives with outcomes. And we said the value-based care market was where we needed to go. We dabbled around in a lot of different places. We looked at bundled payments in surgical centers. We looked at um, when COVID hit, we tried to set up um, rapid testing for urgent cares. Like we, we looked at a lot of different things very, very rapidly, but we knew and always came back to value-based care. And it's ironic because we, that was the first place we looked at um, in January of 2020, and we tried to sell it for about three weeks. And when we called the first couple of clinics, they said, eh, we already have people that do this for us. We don't need your help. And if we, we waited about three months pivoting on all those different places, kind of floundering, trying a bunch of different things. And because COVID got really, really bad in those couple of months, when we reached out again, they said, we just had to lay off our staff. Patients aren't coming in. We can't get in touch with anyone. Now we need help. And that's when we knew not only did we have the right product and the right incentives, but we have the right timing to make this work. Does that describe the arc enough? Yeah, and it's interesting because pivoting is often one of the most difficult moves for a founder, just understanding, okay, this might not be my unicorn opportunity. I'm curious on where you kind of 
um, where, where that idea came from, how you knew that you couldn't stay doing this and how Y Combinator had played into the effect of your business and how it um, helped transform some of your decisions. Yeah, so we always had a slide on our C deck that said like direct primary care, greater primary care market, health systems, and then payers. Like we always had this great progression of markets, but taking a step back at the end of 2019, we raised our seed round in end of September, early October of 2019. We were a summer of 19 YC, closed our round end of September, 2019. And when we sat back at the end of 2019 with our 25 clinics, we said, we've been at this for a year now. How long are we gonna be in DPC? How much, how many results do we need? How, how well developed does our MVP need to be before we like either push into primary care with this or pivot markets entirely? with something else. And we also looked at how complex it was to serve direct primary care. These concierge doctors, as great as they were to work with, from a product standpoint, they were very complex because each of them wanted things done differently. Some of them wanted like their patients responded to you this way or that way. So it was really hard to standardize across our team. And so as our team grew, training was about three weeks. And so we knew that this wasn't a market that we could stay in for a long time, just to say we had a large customer base. So the sooner we chopped that arm off, the better. So we cut all of our contracts off. We talked to our investors first, obviously, but we came in with the opinion to our investors and said, we need to do this. Here's the reasons why, and here's our plan. And luckily Kleiner, Kraft, all of our investors really supported us in making this decision because we understood that the market that we were in was really an MVP building ground and not the unicorn market to begin with. Um, and that, that market expansion slide that they always saw. Um, we had said DPC was gonna be a two to three year market um, that we were gonna be in. And all we were saying was we're confident enough that we don't need to be in that market for that long and we're doing it now. And that built confidence um, from them in us um, because we were making that decision quicker. Um, it was definitely scary to pivot, I think not only for Neil and I, but also for the team. I think it was really hard um, for it to be in such, the company to be in such an ambiguous place for so long. Um, and also for us to like cut off customers that our care team had grown so close to and their patients that we'd been serving. Um, a lot of our team, this was their first startup. And so ambiguity is one of those things that as a startup person, you just get really used to the highs and the lows and the not knowing what's next on the roadmap. But for people who are new to startups, um, that can be really scary. Um, but we did it and it definitely paid off in the long run. To answer your question about YC, I think the best thing about YC was understanding the fundraising process, your relationship with your investors, and also growing a founder community that you can go to and understand um, how to like get support from them. So going to other um, founders and asking about their pivots and granted, like some of my closest founder friends aren't in healthcare, but going to them about, you know, 
man, I'm so questioning myself today. And them just reassuring me, like, you're, you've made the right decision. Um, it just because it feels this way today doesn't mean you didn't make the right decision three weeks ago. Um, and going through COVID with all those founders and getting support from the YC community and the YC partners was really beneficial to have such a large community echoing the same things that was going on on a larger scale was really, really beneficial. So you sort of mentioned this a little bit in, in that anecdote. And I, I love the idea of the, the, the YC community sort of aiding you as you went along. Um, but you mentioned the, the idea of your highs and lows and, um, you know, everyone speaks about entrepreneurs and founders having to deal with resiliency over and over again. And I'm just curious if you have any specific examples of a time when you really had to be resilient um, while you were working at Pear Team. Yeah, I think the hardest part, honestly, the hardest part about being a founder, I think, is people stuff. I know it's like not like the most PC thing to say, but like, I'm a product person. Like I'm so motivated about like what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis that like I can throw myself into product stuff all the time. And like the setbacks around bugs and roadmap, all that stuff you expect, even with sales stuff, like you expect some of that stuff, but team is really hard. I'm a really empathetic person and it's really hard to know how close you can be with your team and not take everything on um, for the sake of the business. Um, we, um, you have to be able to be really close with people enough to let them to be vulnerable and let them know that you're a real person and that you're on the ride with them, but also distance yourself enough to let them know that, you know, you're a leader and that you can be trusted and, and all these things. And that's really hard to navigate when you're moving really fast. Um, and when you're such a small team, I mean, we're only 10 people, including Neil and myself. And you know so much about everybody on the team, even though we're completely remote, I've only met half of my teammates in person because they happen to be in the Bay Area visiting or, or whatnot. And you know personal things about people and it's really hard to forget that someone's family member is dying or that they're struggling with a breakup or something like that. And how do you balance um, needing to achieve big things for the company, even for their sake, for the progress of our survival with cutting someone a break and being empathetic and just listening to them? Um, I have a really hard time putting compartmentalizing some of those things sometimes. And I would say compartmentalizing is my number one coping mechanism. Um, wow, I love that about um, it not being really a specific experience, but just generally um, that idea of sort of keeping the right distance from your employees. And as someone who's just beginning to start his journey on leading other people, um, I, I definitely agree. I, I have certainly not found that balance yet. Um, and I'm still struggling with finding how to motivate other people while, you know, remaining close to them and, you know, how close can you be, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's a, a great description of it. Um, is there a time that you came closest to giving up during Paratime? Yeah, you know, I think YC taught us that more companies fail because co-founders break up 
than any other reason at all. More than product market fit, more than running out of runway, more than anything else, companies fail for co-founder relationships. And one of our early employees got in Neil and I's head and Neil and I had just started like figuring out how to be co-founders because we'd always been friends since forward days. Like we were super close friends. Like, you know, we would go like rafting together, like up on the Russian river. Like we were super close friends, but we were still developing our relationship of how to negotiate and share our feelings about things and um, understand like boundaries, I guess. And I wasn't going to quit. Like I am in this for the long haul. I am here for our mission, like above all, like I, I really care about what we're doing and what we're building as a team. But I think the thing that gets me the most frazzled is when Neil and I aren't on the same page. And luckily, 9.9 times out of 10, it is like tiny, tiny details that we disagree about. And our fights look like they're way bigger than they actually should be because we're 100% aligned. It's just these tiny details that we bicker about. But in the early days, this employee got in our heads, doubting each other. And I, we, it was really rattling to be like, how could someone get in our heads and like, we not be a united front um, with a teammate or with, with an employee. Um, and luckily we brought on um, a leadership coach who has been the most transformative person, I think in my life amongst my therapists, everybody should have a therapist, but founders should absolutely have a leadership coach. And he helped us really develop a language for speaking with each other, not only about the business, but also about each other and supporting each other in a relationship. I always joke that I have a fiance and then I have my work fiance. Um, and those are two the two closest relationships that I have in my life. And if I can't be 100% open with those two men in my life, then like both aspects of my life aren't going to work. I don't believe in work-life balance. They're intertwined very much. I mean, I have work-life balance, but I don't believe that they are separate things from each other. And so learning how to um, have that really key relationship with my co-founder was so important. And that, it, for that experience in the very beginning of Pair Team was just such a spotlight on how important that relationship is and being able to like quickly identify when we aren't on the same team. We don't have to be on the same page about everything and we don't have to agree on everything, but we have to be on the same team. Um, that was a big moment for me. I'll I, never quit, but that was a big moment. I love the idea of coaching because I think it's something underrated that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, why do you think a, a leadership coach has helped you and your team so much? Because no one went to school to be a like I didn't go to school for this and you can't there is no like degree for product roadmap for selling for people management for co-founder relationships for managing your life as a founder the ups and downs and I think that coach 
ends up becoming your teacher for all of those. If you have the right coach, they become your teacher for all those things, a mentor, a therapist, they become all of those people in one. And granted, you bring a lot of your life experiences to being a founder, but you don't have all the tools in the toolbox right away. Like Eddie, like will give me like spreadsheets for like organizing meetings that like as a nurse, like I just wouldn't have had that skill set right away. It doesn't make me a bad leader. It just means that I didn't have that tool in my toolbox. And now that I do, I'm 10 times better at, at leading a meeting. And I don't have to go through the aches and pains and bring my team through the aches and pains of terrible meetings until I figure it out. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Because like I said, I don't think it's something intuitive to founders because like like you said you don't go to school for this there's so much you don't don't really know and we we're going to wrap it up with one more question and it's uh it's a little more of a philosophical reflective one but if you were on your deathbed looking back at your life your career what are your metrics for success and to have lived a a good a good life yeah, easy. Impact on my community and hopefully on the world around me. Definitely like I want to be a mom. So like making sure that like my kids lead a better life than I did, but that's I think mo what most people would say, so I'll like give a pass on that one. Um for me, impact on the world. Um hopefully through my company, but Another thing that's really important to me through being a founder is learning the skills and developing a network that I can use to then move on someday, if I'm lucky, to go on and help other founders um, and people who wanna make an impact on the world. I hope that I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I can pick and choose helping people who will make an impact on the world. Um, and that if I work with them, I can make an their impact even greater. So hopefully I can be on my deathbed someday and just think back on all the ways that I've made the world even just a little bit better. That will be my measure of success. I love that answer, and I, I love your your ease of answering it as well. I, I think it's it's a lot harder for some people, but that one really came straight to your head. And I think that also reflects the my feelings on the rest of this conversation, which is that um, it's been great to hear your opinion, your insight on everything, and your stories. And I also really just love the. It's very refreshing to see a founder. You really seem to roll with the punches and uh, not take everything too seriously, which which I love to see. But that being said, again, thank you so much for coming in. We had a great time. I know Alison did as well, uh, learning about your insight on everything. Um, and we're both, I know, really excited to see where Pair Team heads in the future. And, um, and yeah, best of luck. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Optionality Game. Our next episodes will include a private equity founder, a firefighter turned entrepreneur, and a few other interesting characters. They'll be released every other Friday, and in the meantime, you can find us at optionalitygame.com.